It's time to get your checking account to zero with free checking from PenFed. That's zero ATM fees, zero balance requirements, and zero time spent waiting for your paycheck to direct deposit because you can receive it up to two days early. Open your account with just $25 and see how big zero can be. Apply online today at PenFed.org slash free checking. Early direct deposit eligibility may vary between pay periods and timing of payers' funding. To receive any advertised product, you must become a member of PenFed, insured by NCUA. Part of the fun of looking at different legal systems is seeing that there are more options than we realize. And that's a system in which you have competitive providers of moral law and competitive providers of what you might think of as the government service of taxing people and spending it on good things with individuals choosing among them. Welcome to the Stranded Technologies podcast. I'm your host and founder of Infinita Fund, Nicholas Anzinger. In this show, we talk about how to accelerate the future. Our thesis is that many life-improving technologies are held back by institutional barriers. How can we unblock vast opportunities while mitigating against the risks? What ethical principles, rules, and regulations can guide us on that path? We will discuss these questions with entrepreneurs, policymakers, and industry experts. If you enjoy the show, please give us five stars and visit us at infinitafunds.com to join the community. Today is August the 27th in 2023, and my guest is David Friedman. David is an economist, physicist, legal scholar, and author. His most popular book is The Machinery of Freedom, and he's written books on microeconomics and the economics of law, such as Law's Order, Hidden Order, and Legal Systems Very Different from Our Own. I had a son, Patry Friedman, on the podcast here before on episode 32, and we're kind of working in the same industry, so I interact a lot with Patry. I've been voraciously consuming David's work for the past about three or so years, but since become one of my main intellectual influences, together maybe with Michael Humer and Brian Kaplan's work, who've also been on this podcast. So David is the thus far missing third intellectual giant that I've been waiting to bring on this podcast since its inception. So David, welcome to the show. Thank you. Uh... I like Michael Humer, and I guess I even like Brian Kaplan. I kind of fell down this rabbit hole, which initially started with your father, Milton Friedman and Thomas Sowell. And then I went on to study your work and Michael Humer and Brian Kaplan. And then I was mm -hmm. like, Patry offered a solution. Hey, here are concrete things we can work on. How would you describe or encapsulate your, your family's intellectual heritage? Well, I guess what struck me in recent years is my intellectual innocence in the sense that I grew up in an environment where we're simply taken for granted that what mattered was what was true. And I don't think that describes the world I live in, 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 unfortunately. So I guess one part of it, at least, is the idea that when my parents got married, they decided that there were some things which were difficult to say, and they would therefore create numbers to represent them. And only one of those has survived. Number two in my family, the family I grew up in and the family I currently am part of means you were right and I was wrong. And part of the point of that, as I see it, is that not only is it easier to say number two than to say you were right and I was wrong, but the very fact that you're using the number reminds you of the fact that it's a brave thing to say, that it is an admirable rather than a stupid thing. Uh, I've just been working on a, on, on one of my next few substack 
Post, uh, which deals with the University of Chicago style of workshop or seminar. That if you are at a university and somebody comes to give a paper, the standard model is that you have an hour and a half and he spends about the first hour and 15 minutes in effect reading his article to you. And you then have 15 minutes to talk. In the Chicago model, as I knew it 25 or 30 years ago, everybody in the audience is supposed to read the paper in advance. The speaker has about 15 minutes to talk about it. And it's then open season. And I've been corresponding with some people in Chicago trying to find out whether that still exists. And the answer is mostly that it doesn't. And one explanation of why it doesn't that I was given uh, is that people prefer to give their finished, polished work because it injures their reputation if they give preliminary work and somebody points out that it's wrong. That's not exactly the way it was put to me, but that's the logic of it. And that just struck me as, in a sense, uh, a heretical view of the world. Uh, the idea that you're supposed to pretend never to make mistakes at the cost of not having your mistakes corrected. Uh, the person I was corresponding with said that, that the, the equivalent of that now is that you have a paper with four authors and they privately talk to each other, do the equivalent of that workshop with each other. And that way, the fact that their initial versions were wrong never comes out to the public. That struck me as, as it's not really political, but a sort of an attitude uh, to the world, which I think I was brought up with. I like to describe my loss of innocence as back when I was at some point in my 20s and I was a congressional intern for one summer. And my congressman let me to the Joint Economic Committee, which lent me to a project uh, on, with multiple hats, writing a piece, uh, writing a fact book on state and local finance. And I discovered a fact, and it was an unambiguously true fact, because it was a demographic fact about people already born. It was unambiguously important because it was relevant to the requirement for the largest expenditure of state and local governments, which is schooling. And the people I was working with refused to put it in their fact book because it implied less requirement of revenue and they wanted to persuade you to look more. And the people I was working with were politicians. They were academics. And I found that shocking. The idea that somebody would deliberately mislead the people reading the stuff they wrote for political ends. That was what I guess first suggested the contrast between the world I thought I had grown up in and the world I was actually living in. Uh, and I have observed many more examples since. But, I mean, as you probably know, I've done lots of stuff on the climate issue. As far as I can tell, there are quite a lot of people who are willing to say things that aren't true for what they regard as presumably desirable objectives. As I've pointed out a while ago, Mr. Fauci, in a different context, in the COVID context, has publicly said that he is a liar. He has a New York Times interview in which he says that he's changing his estimate of the requirement for herd immunity in response to polling information about how many people are willing to get vaccinated. And since that polling information is irrelevant to the number required for herd immunity, what he has to be saying is, I decide what to say to people according to what they'll believe or what I want them to believe, not according to what's true. I didn't find the fact that he acted that way surprising. But the fact that he, that he was willing to say so, it seems to me, was.
and that suggests a generally low low adherence to what I thought of as the normal norms of human behavior. Yeah, and also willingness to or, or sort of fearlessness of the repercussions. So he knew it wouldn't matter anyway if that he's admitting that he's lying. Yeah, I don't know what the best interpretation of it. I've had a number of things back on my blog and I'm not sure if I had any in the Substack yet about the whole issue of sort of noble lies of uh, when people perhaps honestly believe that they are deliberately misleading for a good purpose. So if you think of Obama claiming that people would be able to keep their uh, health insurance, he knew it wasn't true. Uh, but if he honestly believed that uh, getting Obamacare through would make the world a much better place, one can understand he's willing to do that. But I still don't like it. Yeah. Yeah, I always try to put myself in those situations. And I mean, the noble lie seems justifiable to me. Again, if you take Michael Humer, right, if you have a friend who's gay and there's this gang in town that comes up to you and asks you, is your friend gay? Then, of course, you say no. Yes. Right? So knowing that you'll be beaten up but, with she's. But, but yeah, but that's, yeah, I agree. And it's not clear where you draw the line between that case. Uh, you know, the standard case, of course, is the person who, who, who hides a, a Jew from the Nazis and who then lies to the Nazis about it. That's a very clear case. And the Obama one, you know, I suppose an, an Obama supporter might say, but look, the reasons why we need Obamacare have to do with bad people doing bad things in some way or other. I don't know how, how you'd make that argument, but you might be able yeah, to make yeah. that argument. But, but in any case, it's... Uh, but I think that, that comes closest. Then as I think about the various things I've been involved with. Uh, and certainly the fact that I'm a libertarian influences them. But a lot of them are influenced by the fact that I'm an economist. That uh, I got involved in the uh, population controversy back 50 years ago, roughly. And what struck me at the time was that people were making a mistaken argument and the mistaken argument was looking only at the negative consequences of population increase, not the positive consequences. And that if you did it right, the conclusion was that you didn't know whether population increase was a good or a bad thing. And that's basically my view on the climate issue as well. Uh, but those, those have a pretty tenuous relationship to my being a libertarian. It's true as a libertarian that climate worries provide excuses for governments doing things. On the other hand, I'm not really opposed to some version of Pigouvian taxation. If I'm doing something that imposes injuries on other people, maybe there ought to be some mechanism to make, pay for them. It's not clear what the best way of doing that is, but I am opposed to bad arguments. And I think my father was opposed to bad arguments. I cannot remember. I'm just thinking there was some online discussion about parents lying to their children sort of as a joke. Uh, and I can't imagine my, either my parents ever doing that. It would have seemed inappropriate. But, yeah. So I guess that's, that's really in the most fundamental sense, my intellectual heritage. And it comes in in lots of, lots of different things that I get involved in. And some of them I'm probably wrong, but where it strikes me that, that 
something is dishonest. So that's, so I'm not sure if any of that is the answer to the question you're asking, but yeah. And I'm curious what you think about Hatri's transition, because he went to say, um, yeah, that's great. So we figure it out in theory now how things could be done better, but what matters is testing, not a practice, right? Sort of putting out entrepreneurial ventures, funding them and just doing yeah. experiments and governance. I think his first transition, so to speak, which was in a sense, correct, was from asking what institutions do you want to asking what framework will generate the institutions you want. And from that standpoint, seasteading was, was a clever answer. Uh, it probably won't work. Maybe it will, but it probably won't. Uh, but the basic idea was that if you want to generate good political institutions, you need a competitive market for political institutions. And, and that was, it seems to me, a, a sensible uh, and important point. Beyond that, I guess I would agree that the world is complicated. Let me make a different point. And that is when I wrote Machinery of Freedom originally, I was pretty sympathetic to the agoric model. If you think about how do you run an economy and arguably there are two forms of human organization, markets and hierarchy. I like markets. So that suggests you should be able to have an economy, which is all markets in which nobody is taking orders from anybody. And I was wrong. Uh, and there's, there's actually quite a, quite a good book, market and hierarchy. The answers ultimately derive from Ronald Coase's work. He's the sort of important intellectual figure, I think, in that area. Uh, but one of his followers went through the, the history of the inside contracting model in the 19th century. And it turns out that there were institutions in which what we do by hierarchy was done by market. It didn't always work. And that there really are trade-offs between the two systems that in the markets, the way I don't know if I'm correctly arguing, correctly representing the book market and hierarchy, which is where I got this chunk from. But roughly speaking, you have a firm that's making rifles and it's not really one firm. It's, it, it's maybe one building with four or five different firms in them. And one of the firms makes the stocks for the rifles and one of them makes the barrels and one of them makes the receivers and one of them assembles them and one of them markets them. That would be the extreme case of dividing. And so rather than a corporation where some of those people are taking orders from others, they're all just trading with each other. But now what happens if the people making receivers have a problem and their critical craftsman gets fired or something or gets sick or whatever. Uh, and now the other four people can't do anything because they need that part of the input. So therefore there is something to be said for an organizational structure, in which they're all working for one firm, the people the guy running that firm says, all right, let's make sure that none of these things will cause others and so forth and so on. That's really the Kosian argument that, that there are transaction costs to dealing on the market. There are incentive costs to dealing by hierarchy, uh, and you trade them off and, and Kos would argue this Kos, as you may know, wrote, he got a Nobel Prize, which was basically for two articles. He wrote other things, but he, he basically wrote two critical articles. And one of them, uh, this one was the theory of the firm. And his argument is that what determines the size of a firm in a market context is that the firm keeps growing until it reaches the point where the cost of doing things internally becomes higher than the cost of doing them externally. 
uh, where the cost of expanding hierarchy is larger than the cost of, 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 of doing the same thing on the market. The other article is the problem of social cost. It would be a different thing to talk about. I had too simple a picture of the world when I originally was imagining that the ideal system would be a pure agoric system. On the other hand, I still like agoric institutions. My most recent book was self-published, uh, and I did send it to two of the high-level academic publishers that had published me before, and not, neither of them was interested. The person I'd worked with at one of them, I think, had been the president, but it just, as he, he wasn't when I worked with him, uh, but had just retired. And uh, But in any case, I didn't think it was worth trying to look for another publisher. So I just self-published it myself. That's easy. Uh, and I like that better. It means that I get my cover done. Uh, there's a woman in Florida, a Russian woman with six kids, I think, who I know only online. It's clearly a very neat person. And she's an artist. And, and so she does covers for me. The current edition of Machinery of Freedom, I did the cover by having a competition on my blog for cover designs. And I ended up with two pretty good ones. And I asked for a second round for those two. And one of the people incorporated ideas from both of them. So I sent him signed copies of all my books, which was what I was offering for the cover. Uh, and that I think is the best cover I've ever had for that book. So I like it the market systems. I am more comfortable with that than with something where somebody's giving me orders. I guess there have been a couple of points in my life where in some sense, somebody was giving me orders, but none of them in a sort of a fairly strict hierarchy. I spent a number of summers as a counselor at a camp for gifted children. And I guess in principle, that was an, I was an employee there. And as a professor, in theory, I'm an employee, but I'm a pretty free employee. You touched on several key themes in the podcast that we talked about a lot, like Coase theory of the firm, for sure markets and hierarchy. We also had a discussion online about that. You recommended that book to me. Something, a puzzle that I'm not sure I've solved yet, but at the same time, I'm not sure how much of it really needs to be solved, right? Uh, and I'm thinking mainly when I see kind of the practical experience of, you know, how we're organizing or running things in Prospera or of having run several startups or started new companies, is kind of a bit of a Schumpeterian insight, right? So you need these entrepreneurs and, and what many economic models have, uh, including Coase a bit, although it's just helpful assumptions, is that they're assuming given or known inputs where the entrepreneur has the function that they have to rearrange the inputs, right? So mm -hmm. they're dealing fundamentally with uncertainty and they're obviously in a situation of uncertainty, the first to the insight of what needs to be done And then they share the insights or give commands to others to be the first to, to market with sort of an, an innovation that they're making or proposing, yeah. right? So in that sense, I don't see hierarchy necessarily as a problem for markets, mm. right? The challenge is that the hierarchies can be functional enough to meet market demands and they're kind of not distorted by imposing hierarchies on them that can't be yeah. changed or are inflexible in a way. Have you by any chance read Coase's final book? The, the, the China book? Yes. I've started it, but I haven't read it fully. Because his, his interpretation of what happened is that Deng did not know that the right answer was capitalism. What he knew was he didn't know what the right answer was. And that the, that the important change, as it were, for Mao was saying, we don't know what the right answer is, so we won't suppress things when they happen. 
So it's in a sense, the same kind of thing. It's a sort of a political entrepreneurial behavior, as it were. In effect, what was really capitalist, although not nominally capitalist, arrangements where local, with the sponsorship of very local governments, you have what were in effect firms outside of the planned economy system. And that was not something they planned to do. It was something which, if I remember correctly, was partly an after effect of the Great Leap Forward, where there have been a lot of sort of village steel mills and such. But it ended up creating what was in effect a capitalist system, which was producing, I don't know, a quarter or something of the, I don't remember the numbers anymore, of the output of China, which nobody expected. And unfortunately, Deng is dead and his, his final, his current successors do not have that attitude, I don't think. Uh, but it was a very interesting book. Coase is an interesting person. The, I wrote an article which was basically an explanation of what seemed to me to be the implications of uh, the problem of social cost, which is now a chapter or two in my Law's Order book. And Coase was a colleague at the time. I was at University of Chicago Law School. And Coase's comment on my article was that you never really understand your ideas until someone else explains them to you. And I suspected at the time that that was a mildly uh, sarcastic comment. And when I was writing a review of the final book, I reread a bunch of Coase's stuff and thought about it. And my conclusion was that what he really meant was that what I was doing in that article and in those chapters was what he thought we should be doing in about another 50 years. That is to say that I was saying, given the Coasean analysis and the problem of social cost, how would you in principle design a legal system? That's what those chapters is really about. And the answer is, well, if only you knew enough, here's how you would do it. And what you have to know enough about is largely transaction costs. And Coase's view, I think, is that what the problem of social cost was, was a reductio ad absurdum of current economics. That current economics implicitly much of the time assumes zero transaction costs. And that Coase would say, well, that's very interesting. Look what happened if you actually assume zero transaction costs. All of the problems economists worry about disappear. And the implication is not that those problems don't exist. It's that you need a decent theory of transaction costs in order to do the problem right. And Coase didn't think we had one, as far as I can tell. So as I think his, his view, if I understand it correctly, and unfortunately he's no longer alive for me to, to check it with, was that what, you, what economists should be doing at the moment was, was understanding transaction costs by looking at real world markets of various sorts. And after we had finished doing that, we could then do what I was doing in chapters, whatever, three and four of, of law's order, uh, because all of my analysis assumed that you had, that you already had a theory of transaction costs. Yeah. Anyway, uh, that's my ex post, my conclusion many years after he made that comment of what he meant. Yeah, yeah, fantastic. Um, we're already at the stage of the debate that I plan to have later. I would love to first set a bit of groundwork to then later then have the debate about transaction costs and how the legal system's influencing that. And yes. I'd love to start with economics. Can you start by talking about what is economic rationality? And I'm asking because I think it's something that many people yeah. misunderstand. 
right? So I would have said that the, the behavior the, economics just proven that it's the, the, rest, the, the rationale of the assumption is that the best way of predicting the behavior of strangers is to assume that they have objectives and they tend to take the actions that best achieve those objectives. And it's clearly not a perfectly accurate description, but I'm not sure we have any better ones. I say strangers because to some extent one can recognize one's own irrationality and in various ways allow for it. Uh, the way I usually put it is that I have discovered that uh, bowls of potato chips within arms reach mysteriously empty themselves. And I can solve that problem by not having bowls of potato chips within arms reach. The story I like to tell because it involves one of my more prominent colleagues, Richard Posner, was that when I was at the law school at Chicago, uh, one summer I told Posner that I had chosen not to rent a space in the law school parking lot that summer. Because if I didn't have a space in the parking lot, driving into work was inconvenient because it wasn't easy to find parking on the street. And that gave me an incentive to ride a bicycle into work. And I thought riding the bicycle was good for me. And he said, but wait a minute, you believe in rationality. If you're rational, shouldn't you make the correct decision about car versus bicycle without having to rig the game by not having it? And I said, rationality is an assumption about other people. The basic idea is that if we want to understand the behavior of people in general, the closest we can come is to assume they have objectives uh, and tend to take the actions that best achieve those objectives. And we know something about objectives because we're human beings. We don't know in detail what other people's objectives are, but we're pretty sure that, you know, most people would rather to live longer and not be sick and have more money and be happily married and a bunch of other things like that that we can sort of get by introspection and observing the world around us. And that's enough to tell us quite a lot about the world, even not everything. And I've been saying for some years that the best criticism of that position uh, is the book Thinking Fast and Slow, which claims to offer a theory of irrationality. And I have not yet seen any interesting economics done from that. That is, there's so-called behavioral economics, and I don't spend a lot of time looking at it, so maybe I've missed something. But my impression is that although behavioral economics may give you some useful information about how to make money or achieve political objectives and such by knowing something about people's irrationality, it's stuff that salesmen have known for a long time and politicians have known for a long time. And I haven't seen anything where you can really improve economics by using it. Uh, the, the suggestion I've been making to various people for a long time is that you should try to do behavioral macroeconomics because I can't do it because I, I don't do behavioral. I don't do macroeconomics at all. It's not something I have good intuition for or find very interesting, but it's surely something important if you understand, you know, the causes of unemployment and business cycles and all that nonsense. Uh, and it seems to me from what I, what little I know about macro is that I think all models of macro at some level, assume that lots of people are making the same mistake over and over again. So if you say, why does unemployment go up when you reduce the inflation rate? And the answer is the simple monitorist model is because people, employees 
think they that they ought to have a job that will give them 10% higher income next year because that's what's been happening for the last five years. Therefore, when the employer is only willing to offer 3% higher because that's what the price he's selling his goods at is going up, some people look for a job, another job instead, unemployment rate goes up. But that assumes that the employee isn't looking at the inflation rate and realizing what's happening. And as far as I can tell, the Austrian version, which I don't understand it very well of, of macro, is one in which entrepreneurs observe that interest rates are low as a result of the government expanding the money supply in their model. And they say, aha, interest rates are low, so we should make investments even if they only pay off at a low interest rate. But then the interest rate goes back up because they, it's only a temporary thing. And then they have to revise their plans and firms go broke or whatever happens that causes that recession. Uh, but that assumes that the entrepreneurs aren't bright enough to realize, look, the only reason that, that interest rates are low is the central bank is doing X, Y, and Z, and therefore they're going to go back up in another year. So all of these seem to involve a bunch of people making the same mistake over and over again. Maybe there's some version of macro which doesn't, but I don't know it. Thinking fast and slow claims to be an explanation of why many people make the same mistakes. That's my project. If you want, if you're an econ graduate student and you want to get a Nobel Prize, uh, the odds, of course, the odds of failure are very high. That's true of many interesting projects, but nonetheless, that's my suggestion for how to do it. To, yeah, yeah. to find some way of explaining macroeconomics uh, by adding behavioral economics to it. Yeah. Um, I'm so curious about the economic rationality because, again, I think yeah. I feel many people get it wrong, um, but you need to have it kind of as a basis to have a conversation about what could be like efficient laws or incentive designs and things like that. Yeah. Yes, even if you're familiar with Herbert Gintis, the behavioral economist, do you know them? And so he's one of the most important ones. He won a Nobel Prize and he said exactly the same thing as you did, right? I can pull out a quote that could have come from the machinery of freedom about economic rationality or from yeah. hidden order, I think it was. Yeah, um, probably. And he said, you need it as a basis, right? So the deviations from it are interesting, but if you don't have that yeah. model as a basis, you can't find out anything interesting about the world. Yeah. Um, yeah. Also, Mikey Humor calls it, we're approximately rational. Right. So we're only looking at the interesting edge cases where we deviate, but we're not like, you know, saying we're going through the store and then crushing into the wall that easily. Right. Yeah. Like we're not super irrational and, and we typically have context, typically acting in predictable ways. So can you also talk about transaction costs? You mentioned those before. Sure. Uh, the standard economics model assumes that if I have an apple that I value at 50 cents and you value at a dollar, I'll sell it to you uh, for some price of 50 cents and a dollar. But of course, I really want to sell it to you for 99 cents and you really want to get it for 51 cents. Uh, that's a bilateral monopoly, which is one of the sources of transaction costs. And conceivably, I might never sell it to you because I'm trying to hold out for a high price and you're trying to insist on a low price. And even if I do sell it to you, it may be that we've spent some time and effort bargaining over it. That's a cost. Uh, and 
it's in my interest not to let you know that it's only worth 50 cents to me because if I can persuade you it's worth 90 cents to me, you'll be willing to pay me at least 90 cents to get it. So therefore, the information needed in order to efficiently allocate apples is to some extent hidden. Those are all examples of, of, of transaction costs. There are various ways of, of minimizing them, of course, and we have institutions that do that, but I don't think we have a very good theory of those institutions, which I think is what Coase really wanted us to have. And again, to train our intuition a bit why transaction costs are important, right? So imagine a world where in order to be able to trade on the market, you have to pay a very high fee, right? Or you have to move to a different country. That's a yeah. very high transaction cost. I'm assuming you're producing yeah. a good now and there's buyers there. So your costs of moving somewhere else are in a sense a transaction cost, right? And, and then there's all sorts of transaction costs that are between you sort of producing a good and having a buyer that wants to buy it. Mm -hmm. And these can be in the form of contracts, for example, or be legal, right? Because we want a system of like property rights and we want sort of rules around you know what happens if someone violates these property rights or commits mm. fraud or something like that these are then also a transaction cost so can you talk a bit but, about but if you think if, if you think for a moment about the disadvantages of hierarchy one of the disadvantages of hierarchy is the interest of the employee is not the same as the interest of the employer and you therefore have to spend resources monitoring the employee and you'll do it imperfectly to make sure that he is doing what you want him to do rather than what he would like to do. And that's a transaction cost inside the firm. So it's transaction costs in a sense exist both with hierarchy and with market. But there are some circumstances in which the transaction costs of doing something by a market are higher than doing it by hierarchy. And then Coase would argue you, the firm does it by hierarchy. That, that in a sense, the, the puzzle, one of the points that Coase makes in the article is that if you take, as you probably know, there was a calculation controversy back between World War I and World War II with Mises and some other people arguing that socialist calculation was impossible. And Abba Lerner and some other people on the other side arguing that it wasn't. Coase's point is that if Mises was as correct as he thought he was, then there would be no firms. That a firm is a miniature socialist system. Now, the problem of, of of calculation for a firm is a whole lot easier than the problem of calculation for the Soviet Union because it's doing a tiny bit of the problem and it's got outside of its boundaries, it's got prices and all sorts of information, but nonetheless, it's largely the same problem. So if it were really a sort of a priori argument that socialism can't work, then it would apply to firms. Uh, and he's right. One can imagine socialism working under ideal circumstances, which is probably something like a religious commune uh, where the people really are sufficiently dedicated to making the commune work so that you don't have to monitor them very much. My point is only that, that small, in effect, socialist or communist institutions can work. The ordinary family, after all, is a communist institution. My family is a communist institution that I don't charge my... Uh, wife, son, and daughter when I do something for the house. And they don't charge me for when they, when they cook dinner and so forth, but it works less well as the numbers get larger, obviously. Uh, and it helps. That is both, both of my examples are ones where people have interests much more in common than the random people.
the people, the members of a small religious group are all trying to promote the same thing. Members of a decently functioning family where everybody loves each other, everyone cares about each other's welfare and so forth. And that doesn't generalize to large populations. Yeah. I'm pretty sure you, you might be interested in the work of Brian J. Robertson on holacracy, right? Which is also based on sort of the agoric idea, right? And it's pretty much the intention of that system of governance of an organization, basically, to keep kind of internal transaction costs low and kind of maximize adaptability to external circumstances. How does it do that? So just, it's just a very clear system of rules and management best practices and try mm. to establish a lot of fluidity. So it's much easier for a more capable person to rise to a level of responsibility that is sort of um, in line with sort of the market circumstances, being close yep. to the customer and things like yep. that. I think one of the things I don't know very much about is how to run firms. Yeah. That it, it's clear interacting with firms that there is a skill, as it were. Mm -hmm. that there have been firms I've interacted with, which felt as though the employees were happy, as though it was a well-functioning thing and their people and, and, and interacted well with the, with the customers as well. And presumably there is a technology of how you make that happen. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's presumably has to do with a lot of these hidden economic issues of things like transaction costs, but it's not, I've never really run a firm. That example just made me think that there's something like internal transaction costs to your firm of to maximize adaptability to in the to the market and then there's also external transaction costs like your firm yes. your unit and you have to basically buy some services from someone to be able to transact with others one of them for example and we discussed this many of times on this podcast and we learned a lot about that since the inception of bitcoin or digital money it was well, money as a whole right because it has certain transaction costs that have to do with inflation that have to do also with sort of abused by government, it's kind of a hidden fee on, on using money, right? That we are now hoping or are possibly able to reduce with cryptocurrencies. Another example is the legal system, right? So the legal system, if you want to settle certain disputes, not all, you have to go often to like a government court. And again, there's a very high cost attached to that in terms of the time and money effort to using that system sort of to be able to do transactions. And of course, the other problem is not only there's a cost to it, but it may, it may, it doesn't necessarily give you correct answers. And that in a sense, one of the interesting questions is how do you get courts that work? Presumably one answer is by having a competitive market for courts. If you think about contexts, which I guess arbitra private arbitration would be one example, but there are other examples where in effect parties decide in advance who will judge disputes between them. And before the dispute arises, both parties have a pretty much the same interest in a low cost, accurate way of resolving disputes. Although once the dispute arises, obviously each one wants the one that, that go its way. Uh, there are a number of, I think, historical examples that one, which I've never really seen an analysis of, but would be quite interesting, uh, is in the Sunni Islamic legal system, where there were four schools of law. There still are four schools of law. They are mutually orthodox in that none of them regard the others as heretical, but they make in details different interpretation of Islamic law. 
And my understanding was that in the Middle Ages, if you were in a city which was big enough so that it had courts of all four legal of all four schools, you could arrange your contract in a particular court, and thus the courts had an incentive to do accurate, low-cost judging. Now, I may be wrong. It's not one of the disadvantages of being a dilettante is that there are risks of being wrong. And so uh, I've spent some time trying to make sense of historical Islamic law because it's an interesting legal system, but I may be misinterpreting it. But at least that's my reading of it. Clearly, there are similar cases in terms of arbitration at present that for a lot of firm disputes are in fact decided by private arbitration. In many cases, that arbitration is legally binding. That is that many countries have basically agreed that if you agree to arbitration in your contract, we'll enforce it. Uh, and then there's a competitive market for arbitrators. So those are ways in which you may be able to do better, but you're never going to get the costs down to zero, obviously. And there's sort of this fundamental problem that in order to keep me from doing bad things, there has to be a penalty to me. But if there's a penalty to me, either that penalty is burned up, which is wasteful, or it goes to the other guy who I've done bad things to, and then he has an incentive to claim I've done bad things when I have. That's, that's a problem in all systems that I have a chapter in, in, in my most recent book, Legal Systems, very different from ours, in which I discuss what I call feud law. And the basic logic of feud law is if you have wronged me, I threaten to harm you unless you compensate me. And that initial problem with that is how do you keep that from being extortion? How do you keep that from being, I claim you've wronged me when you haven't, and you'll have to pay me off or I'll do something bad to you. And I then discuss in the chapter the various ways in which different historical societies have tried to solve that problem. That, that I like to say that when I did the work which led to legal systems, I concluded that in my first book, I'd been reinventing the wheel, that I had been describing a hypothetical uh, narco-capitalist system for a modern society. And there were, in fact, real world, simpler versions of that in much less advanced societies, which I hadn't known about. I was inspired by science fiction, not by anthropology. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're going to definitely talk more about different legal systems. To, again, start with, can you introduce the idea of efficient law? Sure. Uh, let me start with the idea of efficiency, uh, <laughs> that one of the problems economists have had for a long time is that non-economists want answers to the question, what should we do? And what should we do ultimately involves normative questions. What are the objectives you want to achieve? And in my view, w what economists have ended up doing is saying, well, we we aren't really philosophers. We can't tell you what you should do, but we can describe a criterion of goodness, which at least has a family resemblance to what you want and which has the great virtue that we can actually answer questions in terms of. And that's what is often referred to as economic efficiency. And the argument, I think, originates with Alfred Marshall, who is the person who really put modern economics together at the end of the 19th century, more nearly than anybody else, I think. Uh, and what Marshall says is, imagine any change which affects lots of people. And you could say, how much would each person affected 
pay in order to either get or prevent the change if he fully knew the effects on himself. So you say, if, if you impose a tariff of such and such an amount on steel, and if I, as an individual consumer, know that the result uh, will be that something I buy is $2 high, more expensive, I'd be willing to pay up to $2 in order to prevent that. Sum that over everybody affected. And if the sum is a positive, if people regard it as a net benefit, then it increases efficiency. And if it is negative, it decreases it. Marshall didn't use the term efficiency. The term he used was economic improvement. So it's an economic improvement if uh, the sum is positive. And there are lots of problems with that. It involves assuming that all that matters in a decision is its effect on people. So some people might say cutting down an ancient redwood tree is a bad thing, even if nobody knows about it. That would be a not impossible set of values. Or destroying the Mona Lisa is a bad thing, not just because people like looking at the Mona Lisa. After all, they could look at a good picture, good reproduction of the Mona Lisa. It's because the Mona Lisa itself is somehow inherently valuable. And you could think of lots of other things. So that's one problem. A second problem with economic efficiency is that since it's asking how much money would you pay for something, it is giving higher weight to the utility of people for whom money is not very valuable. So rich people will have their utility weighted more heavily than poor people and materialist people who like stuff will have their utility weighted more heavily than aesthetics who don't really uh, care about money anyway. So it's quite an imperfect model, but we don't have anything better as far as I can tell, because different people disagree about values. And the one great thing about economic efficiency is economics can answer questions in terms of it. You can actually make a coherent argument, not perfect. We don't have much in the way of perfect arguments, but a pretty persuasive argument to show that under most circumstances, a tariff reduces economic efficiency. And similarly for a whole price control, minimum wages, a lot of other things. And one of the interesting questions you can ask about a legal system is, does this legal rule increase or decrease economic efficiency relative to some other legal rule? And so any Richard, tariff or any new rule or regulation, I don't know, but the FTA or the SEC or the FAA, yeah. so toppings to many conversations. In, in principle, you can do that. That's right. And uh, I mentioned Richard Posner. And one of Posner's major contributions to economic analysis of law is the conjecture that common law for some sort of not very well explained evolutionary reasons is as if designed to maximize economic efficiency. He calls it wealth maximization, but that's, that's his problem. That is it's the same idea. Uh, and the, and that's an interesting theory. And it's not entirely true. Uh, part of what I tried to do in law's order was to go through both examples where the common law did seem to fit that pattern and where it didn't. Uh, but it's certainly an interesting conjecture. And if you think about it, not as a positive account of common law, but as a normative rule for designing legal systems, you could say, well, look, we would like to have a legal system, which maximizes the size of the pie, to use Bosner's analogy. And we can't do it perfectly 
partly because there isn't a very good definition of size to the pi, but if you're willing to accept the economist's definition as a sort of a rough first approximation, we can then use economics to say this legal rule is probably inefficient, this legal rule is probably efficient. And we can't do it perfectly, partly because of that transaction cost problem, as I mentioned before, that as I spent, I, I think I spent two chapters of law's order in answering the question, what would be the efficient legal rules if we knew enough about transaction costs and considering some different rules for a very, that's a very, I'm, I'm looking at the problem which Coase discussed and which Pagu discussed before him of railroads throwing sparks that start fires. The question is, should the legal rule be that you owe damages to the farmers whose crops are burned or should it be that the farmer can enjoin you and forbid you unless you get his permission or et cetera. And I try to run through the ways in which each of those would make sense given particular assumptions about the relevant transaction costs. And we know something about it. We know that solving the public good problem is easier for three people than for 300 people. That's pretty clear in terms of the logic of the public good problem and things like that. So it's not like we know nothing at all about transaction costs. We just don't know enough about it. Can you talk also about that public good problem? Also something important sure. in that context. Pu public good problem is you are producing a good and you can't consume who gets it. You're producing a good, which if you produce it at all, will be available to all of the members of a pre-existing group of people. So a radio broadcast, assuming you don't have encryption or cable or anything of that sort, would be one example of a public good. Uh, National defense is arguably a public good. Uh, in machinery, I go through the case of a dam to preventing flood, prevent floods. If I put up a dam that prevents floods, it protects the people downstream, whether or not they've helped pay for the dam. And the public good problem is how do you pay for public goods? How do you make it in my interest to produce a public good if and only if the value of it is greater than the cost? And if the public good has a public of two people, well, it's pretty plausible that they can get together and say, I'll pay half the cost if you pay half the cost, and then we'll both be better off. But if it's a public of a thousand people, each of them has a strong incentive to try to free ride on the others. And it's hard to construct ways uh, of bargaining for that public good. And I discussed that problem in machinery, and it's not original with me, obviously that non-economists tend to think of a public good as the good the government produces. And the public good problem is an argument for government production, but it's also an argument against government production because the political system is full of public goods. So in a sense, part of the reason we don't have a good way of using the government to solve these problems is because you think about the mechanism and the political system thinks like voting. They themselves have public good problems that the individual voter, you know, large polity like the U.S. has essentially no incentive to vote intelligently because his vote has almost no effect on what happens. And if his vote does affect what happens, any benefits are shared with everybody else in the country. And that's a huge public for a public good. So individual voters are rationally ignorant, as we say in public choice theory. So the public good problem is one example. The, the general term, I think, is market failure. And that's a misleading term because it's not limited to markets. That one of my standard examples is an army running away because it's in the interest of each individual soldier to run, even though they're all better off if they stand. And 
in a modern warfare, uh, a soldier shooting without aiming because if he sticks his head up in order to aim, he might get killed. And it's true, shooting without aiming makes it less likely he'll kill the enemy, but killing the enemy is a benefit of which he only gets a small fraction, and so he doesn't have an adequate incentive to do it. I like to cite the figures on bullets fired relative to people killed in modern warfare, and it's just enormous. It's like, you know, 10,000 or 100,000 to one kind of, kind of figures. That's the public good problem, but externalities are really the same problem in a slightly different guise. And then the problem is that you say, well, the solution to externalities is, a, is Pigoupian taxes. The solution to externalities is the government says, all right, uh, when you put carbon dioxide in the air, that imposes the cost on other people because it changes the climate. And so we will charge you a carbon tax equal to the damage that your carbon dioxide does. And the problem with that is we don't know how much damage it does. And the people who are deciding the level of the effluent tax don't have an incentive to care what the damage really is. Uh, so one of my recent pieces and subsects and various other things is looking at a particular piece of research on the cost of carbon, which is being looked at seriously by the EPA. I expect they will use it in their regulation. It concluded that the cost of a ton of carbon dioxide was three and a half times what the previous round of this experiments did. And the article is pretty close to fraudulent. I've got a detailed analysis. And in particular, it is calculating costs for the next three centuries. And it is implicitly assuming that there will be no progress in medicine for the next three centuries. Never says it's doing that. But if you look at how they get their numbers, that's what they're doing. It's also implicitly assuming that tripling people's incomes does not make them any less vulnerable to temperature, which is clearly wrong. So it's making a whole bunch of assumptions, implicit or explicit, all of which tend to give you a very large value for the cost of carbon. And I presume the EPA wants for whatever internal reasons to have a high value for the cost of carbon. So we don't have a way, at least I don't have a way of incentivizing either the people writing articles who want their articles to get published, want their articles to make them popular with people around them or the people reading the articles and making laws to actually get the right answer. What's wrong with the externality argument is not the claim that if my putting CO2 in the air imposes costs on people, I'll then do it when I shouldn't. That's a correct statement. It's that we have a solution to that problem because the same reasons, same things that give us the problem also undermine the solution. Yeah, I, I was I was wondering. I've, I've been in many discussions in the crypto space, in the Ethereum space. Public goods is a big topic there. I've always been almost been wondering if public goods aren't even almost like a myth, right? Because you know, there's examples like is Facebook a public good, right? I mean, it's cost free to sign up, and you get instant access for free to all sorts of other people. And their solution to that problem is, of course, you're like the product. You they charge cost of advertising which is a similar solution how public broadcasting is solving that problem, right? So yeah, but public broadcasting, it's not that a radio program is not a public good. It's that an ingenious entrepreneur figured out a way of making it profitable to produce that public good. Exactly. Uh, but I mean, what does public good then mean? So everybody has access to it. It's not the same as everyone is getting the everybody, same value all the, all the member, All the members of a pre-existing group of people. But even you can't all the control members who gets of it. a... Yeah, but even all the members of a pre-existing group of people, they don't all 
you get equal value out of it. Of course not. But, but if you can't control who gets it, you can't charge people uh, for, uh, the, for the value to them of getting it. And therefore your return from producing it will not reflect the, the actual value. I don't know. I'd have to look and think about it more in more detail, but my guess is that the solutions such as combining ads with, with programs probably still give you an inefficient outcome because that's going to be a much less accurate reflection of the value to the consumer of the, of the program than, it, than if you could say to the individual consumer, here's the, as you could with encrypted broadcasts or cable or something, here's the product while you pay for it. Uh, so. But anyway, I, I think I think market failure is a better term than market failure is a misleading term because it implies it's about markets, which it isn't. But it is a term which covers externalities, public goods, adverse selection, a whole bunch of situations in which the common characteristic is that individual rationality doesn't produce group rationality. That even if everybody correctly acts in his own interest, the result will not be the result that would be in the interest of every, that is in the extreme case that would maximize the pie, that would be economically efficient. You can certainly set up at least toy cases where if everybody did something different, everybody would be better off. Uh, and yet it's not in their interest to do it because the decisions are being made by individuals, not by groups of a thousand people. And we don't have a good way. We don't have any way of getting groups of a thousand people to make decisions. So anyway. Uh, yeah. But yeah, we laid some very good groundwork. So curious now, um, again, going back to legal, what do you think of the notion of legal monopoly, right? So because again, something that Tom W. Bell describes, so what we now know is civic law, meaning basically it's made by a legislature. It's basically like a legal monopoly, right? There can be no other providers of that law, right? So the United States is a mixed system that many other countries just have civic law. There are parts of law which there's no reason for that to be. So that contract law, you can easily enough have competitive providers as, a, as in an arbitration system, or what I was describing as the Sunni uh, legal system. Uh, you have to have some way of determining if I do something to you with no pre-existing contract, what happens? Uh, in what sense does that have to be a monopoly like think uh, of regulatory agencies, right? So like the FDA, so you're automatically under their laws, whether you want to agree to it or not, right? Well, as soon as you produce, they want to sell it. Except that, that a good deal of the function they have could be served by competitive organizations providing information. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, so if you think about the question of, is this drug safe? There's no reason why you couldn't have a competitive system. And in fact, that's interesting because there is, in fact, I think a real world example of a competitive system of moral laws. And that's Shia Islam, in particular Iran. If I correctly understand the way that system works, an individual Shia Iranian selects which of the top level clerics he will believe. I should say Islamic law, calling it law is a little misleading because it's a mix of law and morality. So that some of the issues in Islamic law are not, should you be punished for doing this, but is doing this what God does or doesn't want you to do? 
that in Islamic law has five categories of, of, of actions ranging from obligatory to forbidden. But in between that, there is a category of is a good thing, but not obligatory, or is a bad thing, but not forbidden. And then there's a neutral category, that issue five. And if I understand the situation correctly, with regard to all of the things that we would think of as morality rather than law, the individual Iranian chooses which authority he will believe in, he will accept, and then follows that cleric's interpretation of the law, because there are multiple interpretations. And then one of the neat things about is the Islamic system is that taxes don't have to be paid to the government. I think most is probably all modern Islamic societies have some taxes that have to be paid for the government. But the ones that are really Islamic, the so-called Quranic taxes, are supposed to go for about 10 different, different purposes, such as the poor students and so forth. And you can give them to the ruler to spend on that. But you can also spend them on those causes yourself. Or you can give them to a middleman, to somebody who says, in exchange for, I think, a tenth of the money you're giving, I will hand out your money to the categories it's supposed to go to. So it really is a sort of a decentralized tax system. And my understanding of the situation in Iran, and again, I might easily be mistaken, is that the individual Iranian not only chooses which top-level cleric he will obey in, in, in the rulings of, but that's the cleric whose organization gets his Quranic taxes to hand out in the way that that organization is in favor of handing them out. Part of the fun of looking at different legal systems is seeing that there are more options than we realize. And that's a system in which you have competitive providers of moral law and competitive providers of what you might think of as the government service of taxing people and spending it on good things with individuals choosing among them. Now, I don't know a lot about how it works in practice. And, you know, many systems in practice are not as tidy as they are in theory. And I'm going partly, I think, by destruction. When I had the my legal systems very different class seminar, I'm pretty sure I had at least one Shia student who told me about it, but I'm not sure. I had a whole bunch of Sunni students the last year I had, which was also fun. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, the why I raised the issue of legal monopoly, because that's kind of a key theme of this podcast. So again, um, it's also one of my beliefs that we can have competitive agencies to do yeah. what the FDA is doing. Right. So yeah, well that, but, but, but the harder problem is, is, is competitive agencies for what happens to the harder problem is competitive agencies or what happens to if I think you've stolen my television set mm -hmm. when machinery of freedom, I sketched one way of dealing with that. Uh, and that was a system in which you and I are both customers of rights enforcement agencies. Those agencies agree in advance on what court will settle disputes. So you have a monopoly provider in the sense that at any given time between you and me, there is a single court that will rule, but there's a competitive market for determining what that court is. Uh, and that certainly is one possible system. Now, a more extreme system is what I discuss in the feud law section of legal systems. And that's a system where it's entirely decentralized. And what controls it is the relation to our interactions of, of interest with third parties. So do you have a situation where I, in effect, enforce my law myself 
uh, that if you have wronged me, I say, all right, I will beat you up unless you compensate me. And there are a bunch of problems you have to solve in order for that to be a workable system, but some societies have solved them. And one of the points is that you have to have some mechanism such that if you haven't really wronged me, other people who care about it will know. And the result is that you will have support and I won't have support. And that has worked in some societies at some times. Uh, so that's in a sense, a more competitive system because there's, there is no monopoly provider at all. There's a sense in which a lot of our rights enforcement comes from versions of that in our society. The fact that if you do bad things to me, I try to do bad things to you. That's in effect a, a self-enforced uh, system and how well it works is going to depend on the society. Yeah. What I mean is sort of the monopoly versus non-monopoly approach, right? So when you don't have monopoly, you can fix things, right? So if there's problems, then you can come up with different solutions. And I think yes, it's much about sort of the sort of lower transaction costs to fixing problems idea in sort of a non-monopolistic legal system. That's, mm. that's really important. But you say that in various um, pieces in your work, you don't know how the market will solve a problem, right? Yes, the whole that's point correct. is that it's just an open process that allows us to find solutions. We can yeah. contribute new solutions yes. and see if it gains adopted. But, but of course, the, the standard solution to this problem, which works very badly, is a political mechanism for changing the law. Yeah, yeah. And the problem is that that the political mechanism is shot through with market failure uh, and therefore it doesn't have very good incentives. That's, I mean, part of the problem with the Posner thesis is that as far as I can tell, he never gave a believable mechanism for why the common law would end up being economically efficient. I would love to describe to you the regulatory or corporate law that we implemented in Prospera. Sure. Seeing where you can see problems with it or... Yes. So... The idea is, and I'm talking mostly about corporate law here, right? So you have a the idea is you have, um, when you have a business, you can be unregulated or regulated, right? And with the unregulated, then you can basically operate under common law. Um, but common law has kind of harsh punishments if you commit a crime under common law. So you're incentivized to adopt a regulation, even if you're not in an industry that's considered regulated or hazardous, to reduce that risk, that liability. All right. And then you have two choices. Either you adopt the legal, the regulation, say, to run a medical clinic a, um, from an OECD country, like say from Norway, and then your clinic is under that law. Right. And the third, the second option is you propose your own regulation. You cobble different regulations together from different places and say, this is what I want to be regulated under. And then the key is you need to have a um, binding arbitration, exactly as you suggest. And so select an arbitrator and there's a competitive market for that. And then B, mandatory liability insurance, right? So the insurance gives you a premium based on the regulations you select, right? And if you come up yeah. with something that's very standard, right? Sort of very common sense, others are using it. Yeah. It's not a lot to risk to assess. This gives you a very low premium. If you come with a very new or innovative regulation, it's not been used before you get a higher premium because, you know, you need to risk assessment. How, did, how does any of this cover the case where I think you've stolen my television set? That, well, that's what I want because to get at. You would, you, you mm -hmm. would choose a regulation, regulatory regime in which it's almost impossible to prove that you've, you've stolen my television set, which requires a 99.9% .9 certainty. What is your incentive not to do that at, 
an arbitrator will say, well, according to the system that you've chosen and you've said you've chosen, you will almost never get convicted of having stolen my television set. The insurance company doesn't have to charge you a high price because under that system. So how do you deal with, with cases in which the parties involved do not have any pre-existing agreement? Can you describe that again? Because I'm not sure I understood the problem. Uh, sure. Let's go for a moment to the case, uh, since you're talking about biotech, suppose your firm is doing research, which might create a contagious, it might create a pandemic or maybe just a pandemic in Prospera. And so you can imagine a variety of levels of regulation and you don't like the common law rule because under the common law rule, you'll get hanged if you create a pandemic, let's suppose. Uh, so you say, well, I'm going to describe my own rules and my own rules are ones in which I have no liability at all for unintended, in which I agree that I'm liable if I deliberately infect people, but I have no liability at all for accidentally infecting people. So now what happens? The, you've chosen those rules. The arbitrator is supposed to arbitrate in terms of the rules you chose. But the arbitrator also has to agree to it and the insurer has to agree to it too, right? But why wouldn't the insurer, the insurer says, all right, uh, since you're going to win the case when you, if you do something careless that calls a pandemic, we don't have to charge you a high price for the insurance. And the arbitrator, if I understand correctly, is not arbitrating on the grounds of justice. He's arbitrating on the grounds of the regulations that you're under and you've chosen to be under very lax regulations. But then wouldn't that be based on your own ideas? Other market participants wouldn't do business with you. If you don't hold yourself liable when you're messing up, but insurers wouldn't accept that the people, except that the people who might get the disease from you are not people who are doing business with you. The people who might get the disease from you are people who one of your careless workers happened to breathe on in a grocery store. But how likely is that, that you don't need cooperation from anyone, uh, including like the insurance no, no, firms but, and but, the arbitrator they, also wants to have you, a good reputation, right? But, but his reputation is, is, the arbitrator's reputation is not for doing good, but for justly ruling in terms of the regulation that the firm is under. Mm -hmm. I mean, in practice, there's one layer of approval by the Prosper Council to a proposed ah. regulation, right? So there and is it seems an element to me that of... The problem that the yeah. problem is that you have in the back of your mind the existence of a system of norms under which people are judged, which is not the same thing as the regulation they've agreed on. I mean, this is going back to my point about the more primitive feud systems and that they really depend on the fact that the people in the community already know, roughly speaking, what's right and what's wrong, and therefore will interpret your things accordingly. But if you don't have that, and I don't think your argument at least uh, does, then I don't see how choosing your own level of regulation, choosing your own level of regulation is fine if it is only relevant to people you're doing business with. But it could easily, as in, as in my case, be relevant to other things. So my earlier case was, was stealing television sets. How do we do criminal law in your system? where the person who likes to be a criminal will naturally adopt a system of regulation in which the uh, standards of proof are very, very high and the punishment's very low. And you don't consent, you don't need the consent of the victim in order to do that. 
Whereas in my version in, in Machinery of Freedom, you do need the consent of the victim because the legal drill rules have been agreed on by firms that represent both parties. Have been agreed on by firms that represent both parties. That's right. That 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 you have one one rights enforcement agency, which is my which I'm a client of, mm-hmm. one rights enforcement agency that you're a client of. They want to have a peaceful way of settling disputes between their customers. So they both agree on a private court, an arbitration agency to settle such disputes. And that's it to the interest of each of them to take account of the interests of its of its customers. So but in your system, as far as I can tell, it's a one-sided uh, system, and that's it's going to work fine for those cases where the only people affected by the regulation are people who choose to do business with you, and then I you just tell them what regulation think, you're under. I mean, I wouldn't be able to point at the technical specifics, but what you just described, what you said in the machinery of freedom, that sounds like it is in practice here, actually. Maybe I'm just not describing it well or can point that uh, detail where that's how exactly that's ex- articulated. Yes, I would have to, I'd have to know. But as I say, the, the contract problem is easy. <laughs> things that are analogous to the contract problem are pretty easy. <laughs> uh, if you say, uh, with regard to my rights, with regard to my employees, well, as long as you choose a, 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 a legal set of legal rules and tell your employees before they become employees what they are, then it's your interest. It, it, it's in your interest to make account of their interest in, in doing it. Uh, but with regard to strangers who have no relationship with you, I don't, I don't see how it's going to work. Yeah, I can get back to you on that at some point and we can discuss more. Yeah. There's some people there who yeah. thought about that much more easier than I have. Yes. What yes. I'm curious, though, is one of the final so questions. So maybe we have to get Tom Bell in in one of these. Yeah, yeah, he's yeah, been yeah. much more involved than you have been. Or Nick Dranius, the Prosper General Counsel, who's really putting all of this into practice. Yeah. How it can it look like here? Um, I'm curious, as a, as a final question, so you know about free cities, private cities, seasteading yeah. through your son. What other kinds of legal systems or approaches to governance do you see as those should be tried out? Nobody's doing them yet. Yeah, well, one, for some problems, which I think somebody has made arguments for, one of the Silicon Valley people, is non-geographical nations. That is to say, a situation where a group of people are under some set of rules that apply to all the members of the group, but the groups are not, and the people are not in one place. And some of that, of course, exists already. If you think about uh, members, oh, if I think about my hobby of society of creative anachronism, it's non-geographical uh, and there are rules and the rules get applied and so forth and so on. And there've got to be other cases of that sort. I expect that almost all hobbies have some version of that. And then the question is, how do, are there good ways of expanding it uh, to cover more things. Um, so that would be something certainly worth thinking about, but I'm not sure it's going to solve your problem. No. Is there any other alternative? Well, of course, one which which exists, has existed for a long time, is sort of religious or cultural groups, that the Romani had their own legal system. The Jews, much less now, but probably still true for the Orthodox or the ultra-Orthodox and Jews historically, had a non-geographical uh, legal system. And 
a lot of that depends on your having a group where being expelled from the group is very costly. And therefore, if you say, all right, you don't have to do what the Romani court says you should do or what the Jewish court says you should do. But if you don't, you're no longer considered Romani or Jewish. And in an environment where that's a very high cost, uh, then systems can enforce on their own people rules. So I guess those would be other other approaches, and it might be worth thinking about to what extent they can be generalized. Yeah. Yeah, I like that. So with the also already some attempts at non-geographical communities, so I see a lot of that happening, actually. I'm, I'm um, wondering to what extent you can have artificial ones. I'm thinking about a system that probably doesn't work. But suppose you say, all right, uh, here is the community that we're setting up. In order to join the community, you have to make a $10,000 payment. And these payments are held in a pool and used for the benefit. But you, you forfeit the payment if you, ref if you fail to go along with the court's verdict. So that would be a way of artificially creating the equivalent of the cost of being uh, pushed out of your religion, cultural group, and so forth. And there may be ways of doing that, of doing some equivalent of that, but I have to think about it more. Yeah. Yeah. That, so that's definitely one thing that I see happening. That's kind of my goal with my work, inspired by you partly and together with your son, that we're expanding the opportunity space, have more of these jurisdictions mm -hmm. and just allow for more of these innovations. Some of these ideas that you and um, your colleagues like Tom W. Bell or friends have been developing for a long time to try them out in practice and see what works. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. thanks so much, David, for paving the way for right. that. Any last shout out that you want to give where listeners can find you or engage with your work? I have a website, uh, daviddfriedman.com, and it's got a large fraction of my published work on it, readable for free. I have a Substack, which you can find on Substack, or you can go to my webpage and there's a, a link to that webpage, a link to the Substack. And I've been putting out Substack posts about every three days. It's free. Uh, on a wide variety of different topics. So those are places where people can look at. And also an awful lot of my talks are up on the internet as videos. Few of them as text or as audio, mostly as videos. So if people would like, uh, like to hear me talk about many, many different things, you can find it pretty easily. Thanks so much, David, for coming on the show. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.